This evening's reading is from Luke chapter 5, verse 27, to chapter 6, verse 11. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Jesus said to him, John's disciples often, often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and his disciples began to pick some of the ears of corn and rub, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you, what, what it, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked round at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is God's word. Thanks, Izzy. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar here, and it's a delight to be bringing you God's Word tonight. Do keep your Bibles open. We're going to work our way through uh, Luke 5 to 6 together. Let me pray, and then we'll get straight to it. Father God, we, we pray that you would show us who the Lord Jesus is tonight. We pray that we would see not just a real man in history, not just the one who came to die for sins, not just the one who is God in human flesh, but that we might see and be convinced in the depths of our hearts that here is the answer to the longing of our souls. Amen. 
Luke 5, 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Now, there is an awful lot about following Jesus, which is pretty difficult. Love your enemies. Put other people first ahead of yourself. Fight your long-cherished, deeply loved, well-nurtured sins. There's a lot about following Jesus that is just blooming hard. But here we're told that Jesus' people are those who are known for eating and drinking. There is finally something in the Bible you and I can excel at. I'm a great Christian, apparently. This is wonderful news. Okay, the issue being addressed here is slightly more profound than uh, you can work out by your calorie count how good a Christian you are. It's not a passage about how to fast or whether to fast. It's not actually a passage about how to do Sabbath rest well. What's going on here is Jesus Christ is putting himself in the center of human history and presenting himself as the answer to all human longing. And he says, the rejoicing and the rest that our souls yearn for, you find that in me. That's what Jesus is doing here. And he invites each and every one of us here tonight, come to me and find rest for your soul and find rejoicing. Uh, I guess we'll come in a variety of places. Some of us are looking into Christian things. We are learning more about Jesus, trying to work out what we make of the Christian life. Could we live this way? Is it true? Can I, what do I think of it all? Others of us may have been Christians a long time, but feel a little weary and tired following Jesus. And so I hope tonight that wherever you've come from on your spiritual journey, you'll see who Jesus is a whole lot more clearly and that you'll leave here with joy in your heart and a feeling of being at rest in your soul. That's what Jesus offers tonight. Sounds wonderful. Let's see how he goes about showing us that. So just a couple of points for you. Firstly, Jesus brings uh, rejoicing and revolution. That really takes us from verses 27 to 37. What you've got here are three controversies. At this point, Jesus' public ministry has just begun and things are already kicking off between him and the religious establishment of the day. And so you've got three controversies, three disagreements with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the elite of the day. And the first one involves fasting. Now, a little bit of background. Fasting means going without food. Hopefully that's unnecessary background. But in the Old Testament, fasting is about two things. It's about mourning and about longing. It goes along with prayer, and, but fasting ties prayer to mourning and longing, it seems. And you see that in particular because there is just one day in the entire Old Testament system of religion, just one day when the, the whole nation of Israel gathers to fast, and that's the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. That's the day when the whole nation of Israel would gather at the temple And they would see the rituals and in particular the animal sacrifices that symbolize the forgiveness of sins. Animals slaughtered to purify the temple because it was contaminated by the presence of sinful humans like you and me there. And the slaughtering of the animals that in some way indicated that that the animals died in the place of sinful people. One death for one human. And so the fasting that went alongside the Day of Atonement, was a fasting to to mourn for their sin and to long for the day when sin would be fully and finally dealt with. Not, Not just symbolically and ritually with the death of an animal, but 
really and deeply so that their souls would be free of guilt. So fasting was about uh, mourning and longing. And just as at the Day of Atonement, you see as you go through the rest of the Old Testament that it, it, it focuses on mourning and longing and especially on confession of sin. Daniel 9 is a great place if you want to look it up a little bit more later. So just one day, but by Jesus' day, things have expanded somewhat as they tend to. And by the time Jesus started his public ministry, a, a pious Israelite would fast more often than a Hollywood celebrity preparing for a beach trip. They were, it was incredible. The Pharisees, twice a week, it was only daylight hours for them for their twice a week, but twice a week they would fast during daylight hours. And so, to be honest, fasting, by the time Jesus is speaking these words, is not just one part of religious duty. It is absolutely at the heart of what it means to be a pious, a godly, a God-seeking member of the people of God, an Israelite. And that's not just a, a sort of Pharisee's weird perversion. We probably know the Pharisees are the comic book baddies in some way. But actually, do you see from verse 33 that John the Baptist, he's as good as it gets and his disciples also fast. They say John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the, the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Now, what's provoked this question? Well, the backdrop is that Jesus is just called a tax collector. Now, they're the scum of society. He is just the most wicked, publicly hateable, front page of the tabloid news, everybody can't stand them type person. And Jesus has just said, I want you to be my follower. Look at verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi standing at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. So the religious leaders, whoa, outrage, verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' answer gives something of a mission statement for him. This is central to who he is. This is central to everything Luke wants us to know about Jesus from this point onwards. Jesus answered, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the context. So this conversation about fasting has probably taken place just outside Levi's house. They've, they've sort of wandered out uh, and the thumping drum and bass of Levi's party is, is carrying on inside and they've come outside so they can hear themselves have a conversation, well, an argument. And Jesus now explains why on earth are his, are his disciples party people rather than religious and fasting and very serious? Verse 34, Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Two things you've got to know. In the Old Testament, God presents himself as the bridegroom or the husband of his people Israel again and again. If you want to follow that up, Isaiah 54.6 or Jeremiah 2.2, Ezekiel 16.8. God was the bridegroom of his people again and again in the Old Testament. Secondly, in a Jewish wedding, uh, the way things happened is all the party would be set up at the bride's house. Canapes would be plated, kept in the kitchen. The foil would come off the champagne, but the corks would stay in. All the guests would arrive, but nothing would happen until the bridegroom came. 
So all the sensible guys are loitering at the door where they know the waiters come out with the canapes. But no canapes emerge from those doors until the moment the bridegroom arrives. And then, then the party starts. And Jesus is saying, I've arrived. The party has to happen because I am here. See, the Bible never pictures eternal life, heaven, as a church service that never ends. It always pictures it as a party you'd never want to end. That's the picture the Bible has. It's the best wedding party you've ever been to, and better than that. Do you realize what a claim Jesus is making here? He's saying, look, all the fasting of all of God's people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years as they lamented and mourned their sin and longed for forgiveness, all of it is answered in me, he says. He is the answer to their prayers. He is the answer to their longing. He is the fulfillment to all that they've wanted. He is the forgiveness for their sin. And so when he arrives, fasting stops and feasting starts. It's a stunning claim. See, what Jesus is saying here about his presence is a bit like a camping holiday in Britain. Um, now, there, if you've ever had a camping holiday in Britain, you can go to a campsite which has good facilities or you can go to a campsite which has bad facilities. You can get on really well with your family or you can have um, a normal time with your family um, where there's a little bit of, you know, releasing of tension. Uh, but to be honest, if somebody asks you, how was your week? There is only one thing that really determines what the week was like. If it looks like this, I don't care how good the campsite is. It's, yeah. But if this happens, oh, who cares? You know, the tent could blow away and, oh, I don't care. It's just fantastic. The sun shone. The sun shone. The weather wasn't British. It was wonderful. And Jesus says, look, here's the sunshine. He is the, nothing sad can happen when he is there. He is the thing that you long for and makes everything right and better. He says, ultimately, they cannot fast. They cannot mourn. They cannot long because I'm here. Now, that then leads to the second section uh, and the little parables or illustrations that Jesus uses. So look down at uh, Luke chapter 5 and verse 36. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. The point very simply is this. You can't squeeze following Jesus into the Old Testament system of religion. Everything changes with his arrival. That's what he's saying. Now, the first image is ludicrous with the patches. Make do and mend isn't really our culture. It's not survived the arrival of Primani and dirt cheap. I mean, why would you mend? Just buy something new. It seems, you know, it's our culture. But we can understand how ludicrous it is. Why would you cut a piece out of a new piece of clothing to mend an old piece of clothing unless you work in the fashion industry and it's the thing but you just don't do that you've ruined the new piece of clothing and as the the new piece shrinks when it's washed it will ruin the old bit of clothing as well two ruined bits of clothing it's stupid that's the point point. and the the wine thing 
Now, when they made wine back then, what they would do is they would take a dead sheep, they would scrape out all the innards, they would treat the skin, sew it up tightly, pour the wine, the unfermented wine, into the sheep's neck, seal it up, and let it ferment. It's enough to make you go teetotal. But that's how they made wine back then. Now, as the, as the wine ferments, the skin would expand, but the soft, fresh, new sheep skin is able to expand. But over time, it would become brittle and hard. So when you come to pour your sheep of wine um, at the dinner table, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of hard and solid. Um, and you thought a carton was manky. I mean, this takes it to a whole new level. But, they, but once, the, once the skin's gone hard, if you then poured in a fresh batch of wine, well, the brittle skin can't expand, so it'll split, and the skin will be ruined, and the wine will go. Everything is lost. So Jesus' point that he's making graphically is, look, you can't fit me into the Old Testament way of religion. He's not just another prophet who speaks the word of God, just a bit better than the others. He is the word of God in human flesh. He's not just another priest who offers sacrifices for sinners at the temple. He is the final, the great, the true, the eternal high priest who offers the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice for sin, his own body, and ends everything. You can't, you can't carry on observing the rituals of the Old Testament once Jesus arrived because they all pointed to him. He is their fulfillment. I've got um, a good friend in the armed forces, and he has a young family. And when he's away on operations, like many people in the armed forces, uh, what his family do is they create a countdown chart with all the days until he comes home. And they'll gather after supper with the, with the little children, and they'll uh, cross off the day, shed a little tear, and pray for his safety. And they'll do that every day. That's their ritual, because they love him, and they want him to be home safely, and they miss him desperately. And there are three little boys, and that's quite a lot for, for his wife to deal with on her own. But imagine if uh, a few weeks after he gets back from his latest tour, you're down and you're having dinner, and uh, it's all great fun and chaos with the boys, and then the meal ends, and they all get up to go and play outside. Say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You, you haven't ticked off a day on the fridge, and you haven't cried that he's not here, and you haven't prayed for his safety. How can you just go and play, you heartless woman? Don't you care about him? Uh, now, that's a bit odd. The ritual stops. He's here. <laughs> you, you don't carry on the ritual. The point of the ritual was to prepare for him to come home, and he's now home, and he's safe. Now's the time to play and have fun. Everything changes now he's here. Everything changes with Jesus. See, the, you don't follow the Old Testament rituals because the whole point of them was to point to Jesus. He is the answer to every question the Old Testament raises. He is the fulfillment to every promise the Old Testament makes, 2 Corinthians 1.20. He is the destination for every signpost that the Old Testament points. He is the reality for every shadow and every ritual and every sacrifice. The Old Testament promises forgiveness. The Old Testament uh, models how forgiveness can be achieved, Jesus does it. He dies. Forgiveness happens. He is the feast for which all the Old Testament fasting longed for. Now, as uh, verse 35 points out, he's not with us now. And so 
now that he's gone back to heaven, there is a sense in which the, there is a time for fasting and mourning still now. And as you look through the, the, the history of the New Testament, of the, the early church in the book of Acts in the New Testament, you see that they did fast sometimes when they're particularly desperate for God's help and guidance. But we'll come back to that at the end. Now, the next verses, um, they might seem to start a different topic, all about Sabbath rest, but actually they continue the same thing. They're not really, we're not going to get into is Sunday trading a good or a bad thing. We're not going to go there because that's not the point of these verses. These verses are much more, again, what do we think about Jesus? Do we see him as the one who brings the rest and restoration that you and I long for? So secondly, uh, Jesus brings rest and restoration. Now, by this stage, the Pharisees have started following Jesus around like a driving test examiner. I don't know if they, they've probably got iPads now, but when I was taking my tests, um, just two, just two. First one failed for speeding. Um, they, uh, they, they, had a, they had this long list of boxes and they would cross against mistakes you made. Uh, and it's, the Pharisees are basically following Jesus around doing that at the moment. That's what's going on. They're looking for violations. They're looking for reasons to accuse him. And they think they've got him on a major fail this time. Chapter 6, verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and his disciples began to pick some ears of corn, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Okay, what was the Sabbath? It's one day off a week. For them, it was Saturday. Simple. There's a bit more to it than that. It was actually quite like fasting in one sense, because the Sabbath at its heart is about a longing, just as fasting was about a longing. The Sabbath was about the longing for rest. See, rest, when it talks about Sabbath, is not quite the same as the London, I'm just knackered and I'm hanging out for a holiday. No, it's, it's the rest, not the rest of doing nothing. It's the rest of everything being right. Everything being fair, everything being just, everything being healthy. You see this, actually, when you look at the Ten Commandments, how the Sabbath is described. If you look at um, Exodus 20, which I think we've got up um, as a slide, when God gave the Sabbath law to his people, he said, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall neither do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in it, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Do you see, Sabbath is modeled on the rest God had after he'd finished, completed creation. It's not the rest of total inactivity. It's the rest when everything is complete. It's not the rest of when you, when you finally manage to buy a flat and you buy something that's in need of some work in zone 37 and uh, you, you're exhausted after moving in and so you ignore the... Um, there's frankly dangerous levels of mold in the bathroom, the 1980s wallpaper and the boxes. And you just collapse on the floor with the one bit of furniture, your TV, and you order a pizza. And you just ignore the chaos and do nothing. It's not that kind of rest. It's the rest of when you've finished doing it up. When you've finally finished it. And you invite your friends round for a meal. It's probably own brand cornflakes because you're skint having done it up. But, but you... 
It's all done and you can enjoy it. That's what Sabbath is. It's not just inactivity. It's the rest of everything is right and I can now enjoy it. And that's why even after God has given the Ten Commandments, telling people to take one day off a week, the Bible keeps talking about Sabbath rest as something future, which is odd. I mean, just take a day off. But the Bible keeps saying it's, it's a future thing. It's not something that you can really have fully now. So Psalm 95 and then Hebrews 4.1 in the New Testament, we read in Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, huh, you're not yet there. See, Sabbath is more than taking a day off in this broken world. Sabbath is about enjoying life in an unbroken, restored world. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day have completely lost sight of this. Instead, they're fixated on their technical rules that they've developed. There are 39 things you cannot do on the Sabbath. And one of those things you're not allowed to do is harvest grain. And so they complain, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And I think Jesus must have been tempted to answer them, oh, do grow up. But he gives them something much more serious, much more profound, and actually much more revolutionary. His answer comes in two parts. Firstly, verses three to five. Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. What's his point? His point is, I have authority to do this. So he refers to an incident in the Old Testament recorded in 1 Samuel 21, where the great King David goes to Abiathar, the priest, and says, look, my men are starving. We're on a mission from God, and we need the bread that's only really permissible for the priest to eat. And Abiathar gives it to them. Now, Jesus' point is not, look, David's men were really hungry. My men are really hungry. So they ought to be allowed to eat because it would be crazy to let a rule stop them eating. Now, his parallel is not between the need of the men. His parallel is between the authority of the person. He says, just as King David has authority to apply God's law, I have authority. And even greater authority. He says, look, you, the Pharisees, the self-appointed religious leaders, you don't have the authority to determine how God's law applies. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I say how it applies. It's a big claim. But the second incident, he actually makes a bigger claim in the second incident, although he doesn't say it explicitly. Look with me at uh, six to nine. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up, stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked round at them and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and the hand was completely restored. So he's saying, look, Sabbath is meant to be a time of rest when everything's working well. How is this man supposed to have Sabbath when his hand doesn't work? 
How, is, how are we supposed to, to sit back and say, yes, there's rest when there's a world that's not at peace, when sickness is not healed? Sabbath is the rest of everything's restored. The broken has been healed. The disease has been made better. Wickedness has been judged. That's what Sabbath is. He's saying, look, Sabbath rest will come fully and finally when God finishes remaking the world, destroys and banishes all evil. And there is no longer any sickness, no longer any frustration, no longer any disappointment and no longer any hurt. Then there'll be Sabbath rest. So how can you say it's Sabbath when there's a man there in this state? And so historically, Sabbath hasn't actually been a day for doing nothing for Christians. You know, we all know the headlines about the Puritans banning um, sports on the Sabbath and whatever. But actually, historically, Sabbath has been a time not of inactivity. It's been a time when God's people historically rested as we gathered to worship God and, and refuel ourselves in his presence, but then scattered to serve the needy. Sabbath was an off, often a time when Christians would go to, to the poorer parts of town and serve the people who were in need. Well, how did the, the Pharisees respond? Verse 11, they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. How ironic. How dare you heal life on a Sabbath? But we're quite happy to plot murder. But there's a warning for you and for me as we see their response. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of the very religious system they thought that they were serving. And yet when he arrives... They want to get rid of him. Why? (laughs) I think it's a power play. He presents himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. And they're in love with their control and their rituals and a system which has them at the top. And so they cannot see Jesus as the fulfillment. Because to, to recognize who he is means they would have to step off the throne and allow Jesus to run their lives. And they have no intention of doing that. It's a danger for all of us. So much about Jesus is attractive and wonderful, but to receive him as the answer to the longings we have, well, it means to receive him as the Lord of the Sabbath, the king of our lives. And we quite like being in control of our lives. As we close, I just want us to think through this a little bit more. You see, Jesus brings rejoicing and rest. And yet the truth is many of us, if we're honest, feel quite worn down and tired out. I don't know the last time when you've asked somebody, how are you doing? And they've responded, you know what? I'm just full of rejoicing and feel really at rest. What? In London? Are you insane? You'd probably have them committed. Nobody speaks like that. Why is that? I guess most of the room here, we're Christians. I won't make you put your hands up, but internally, hands up. Who would say, right now, I just am full of joy and rest. Why is that if Jesus brings it? Let's be honest. Sometimes it is because even as Christians, we don't really build our lives on him. Uh, We're betrayed by the focus of our energies and efforts and the contents of our daydreams. Our hopes, our longings, our desires are tied to the things of this world, financial security, 
relationships, families, careers, all good things. But all of our hopes are tied to them. And so, of course, we don't have joy in Jesus because he's not really at the center of our lives. We look to relationships, careers and finances to bring us joy and rest. And to put it in Jesus' words, it's as if we're trying to fit him as a spiritual patch onto our old lives rather than recognize he's come to make something totally new. It's as if we're trying to pour the, the new wine of Jesus into the, the brittle old wineskin of our lives. We don't want anything to change, but we want the forgiveness and, and we want, the, uh, we want the, you know, the guarantee of eternal life, but we don't want anything to change because we quite like our life the way it is, and it just doesn't work like that. I mean, here's the thing. If not even the God-given rituals of the Old Testament system of relating to God, if not even that can come close to what Jesus offers, then we are fools. We are fools if we think that the stuff inside our lives might fill us, might answer our longings. So put Jesus at the very center of your life. And what does that mean to turn to him for rejoicing and rest? Throw yourself into knowing him. Give the best of your time, the best of your efforts and energies into knowing him through his word and prayer. Don't make time with Jesus the thing that you squeeze out, put off, or allow anything to distract. Don't make church time with God and his people the, the thing that anything can come in the way of. Invest yourself in him. Think on, dwell on, meditate on, long for his promises. Search the scriptures for the things that he promises and pray on them, meditate on them, hope in them. Put him back at the center of your lives and live for him. Jesus will never feel like the place of rejoicing and rest if we try and relegate him to a little spiritual corner of my life and I and I continue to have my control and my way on everything else. He doesn't work as a spiritual patch. He's come to do something much, much better than that. But there is another reason. It's not just your bad Christians. <laughs> some, of us, some of us need to turn away from the worldly things that we're living for. But actually, even, though, even when you pursue Christ, there is a reason why we don't know the joy and, and the rest that he speaks of here. And that is that the rejoicing and the rest that Jesus brings are now and yet, not yet. Now, but not yet. What do I mean by that? There are some things that Jesus gives you and you can have right now, but an awful lot of his promises aren't really ours until the future. So we've arrived at the banquet and we can smell the food, but it's not until Jesus returns and remakes the world that we'll actually eat it. There is a now and a not yet. Now, already, we rejoice in the hope and the life he brings. Now, we rejoice in the restored relationship with God. Now, we rejoice in the presence of his Holy Spirit living in us. Now, we rejoice in the reality of sins completely forgiven. Now, we rejoice in knowing that we are washed clean and we are acceptable before God. Now, we rest from having to earn our way into heaven. Now we rest in the security of not having to fear death or worry about the future because it's in God's hands. Now, Jesus does bring rejoicing and rest. But we are not yet in heaven. 
we're not yet free from the miserable effects of sin that continues in all of our hearts. We're not yet free from the miserable effects of the sin that lives in the hearts of everybody else around us as well. We're not yet free from living in a world where greedy CEOs cream off tens of millions while the pension funds of their employees get emptied. We're not yet living in a world where cancer and Alzheimer's aren't words anybody's heard of. We're not yet living in a world where there's an end to the murders that kill 437,000 people a year globally. We still live in a fallen, broken world. We're not yet at rest. We're not yet rejoicing in the way that we will do when Jesus returns. And so we still know mourning and longing. We still fast and pray and look forward for his return. Did you read they said it's going to be the coldest winter for 30 years? Doesn't that just cheer you <laughs> this stage in the year? Coldest winter for 30 years. I think they, they kind of always seem to say that, but saying, a lot of people are saying that this year. Now imagine in February, imagine it's as bad as they say, but in February you get taken on a holiday to the Caribbean. Oh yes, all expenses to the Caribbean. But you arrive at night time. You don't yet feel the sunshine. You don't yet know that, oh, that wonderful feeling as you stand there without a shirt on and the warm sun is on your back and you're burnt in 30 seconds. But it's, it's just, it's fabulous for that 30 seconds on the first day of the holiday. You don't yet feel that. But there is a measure of joy once you've landed at nighttime because you know that although you don't yet feel the sun, in just a few hours more, the sun will rise. Oh, the sun will rise and you will rejoice. But actually, I don't want to finish with the not yet. I want to finish with the now. See, as the crowds dispersed at the end of the Day of Atonement, as the high priest dismissed them from this great annual festival, he sent them home having seen all these slaughtered animals. He sent them home with their stomachs empty and rumbling. But he also sent them home with their consciences full of the guilt of their sins because nothing that had happened had dealt with the guilt. But I can do something better than the high priest did. Not because I'm better than the high priest. I can do something much better than the high priest did at the day, end of the Day of Atonement because since that day, Jesus has come and he's died for sins. So where the high priest used to have to say at the end of the Day of Atonement, well, see you again, same time next year. I can say to you, with God's authority, I don't know whether you ate today, I don't know whether your tummy is full, but if your conscience is full of sin and guilt, if your life you know is full of sin, I can say to you with God's authority that if you put your trust in Jesus right now, that you will walk out of here with your conscience clean with your guilt forgiven and with your sins washed away. Because we're not yet in heaven, but now, now Jesus has already come. He's already died and he's already risen. And as we read at the beginning, he came to seek and save sinners. And so tonight Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Come to him tonight and there is joy and there is rest. And one day you'll know it beyond measure. Let's pray.
Our Father God, we, uh, we pray that for those of us who have um, lived with you on the margins of life, that we would come back to you, that we would seek out the joy and the rest that only you can bring, that we would stop trying to squeeze you out, to patch you onto our life, and, and instead we would rejoice to let you be our Lord. We would allow you to change everything, and we would find the joy and the rest you bring. Father, for those of us who, uh, who don't yet know you, we pray that you would give us the faith, even tonight, to put our trust in you. That we might know the joy of sins forgiven. That we might know the rest of the God for whom our souls were made. And that we might know the hope of heaven before us. Amen.